welcome everyone to our webinar tonight. It is a program of Citizens Climate Lobbies that provides us as supporters with access to in-depth training opportunities on topics related to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'll be your host tonight, Brett Cease, and our topic tonight is going to review the new research on the climate benefits from the Big Wires Act. We're going to have the chance to learn from researchers from MIT who have recently published a paper detailing all the great benefits that would come from passing the Big Wires Act, our primary ask this past fall conference, as well as researchers from Vanderbilt publishing a study about the big role that household electrification and efficiency is going to have the chance to play in realizing the Inflation Reduction Act's climate pollution reductions potential. We've also received an update about the status of the Inflation Reduction Act's important home electrification and efficiency rebate programs that have been in development for the past year and a half. So there's a lot of research that is out there and who can get us through that in a comprehensible and understandable way. No one better than our very own research coordinator, Dana Nucitelli. So tonight's training is gonna summarize all of this new information that's critical to CCL's clean energy permitting reform and building electrification and efficiency policy areas. A little bit more about our friend Dana here, and then I'll pass it to him. Dana is an award-winning climate uh, and environmental scientist with degrees in astrophysics and physics from UC Berkeley and UC Davis. He's also been a climate journalist for SkepticalScience.com, The Guardian, and Yale Climate Connections. He's the author of 10 peer-reviewed climate science papers, as well as the book Climatology versus Pseudoscience. So thank you so much for joining us tonight, Dana. I know that these are always some of the most popular and well-appreciated webinars that we host. And if we, and when I say we, I mean Dana, has done a good job tonight, you're going to learn from this training about the following three learning goals. Number one, what new research tells us about the benefits of the Big Wires Act? Number two, what's new with the Inflation Reduction Act's home electrification and efficiency rebates? And lastly, how can we in CCL use these studies to advance climate solutions in our own advocacy? So with that, thank you all so much for being here. Again, I'll put a link in the chat where you can follow along with our slides and I'll pass it to you, Dana. The floor is yours. Cool, thanks, Brett. And welcome everybody. So before we get into talking about the updates on the Big Wires Act and the Inflation Reduction Act, I wanna kind of step back and uh, take a general view and remind ourselves of why uh, this is so important, why transmission, electrical transmission in particular is really important. Uh, because again, we got in the Inflation Reduction Act, these great clean energy tax credits passed. And so as a result, we're ready to build a whole bunch of new solar and wind projects, especially this big wind and solar farms out in kind of rural areas. Uh, they're just like ready to go and just waiting for the green light. Um, but the challenge is that we got to get those connected to the grid. We have to have transmission lines to connect them to the grid and to cities where lots of people are. And also the grid has to have enough capacity to handle that new electricity generation from those big uh, wind and solar farms. And so the challenge is that we got to build more transmission lines, but transmission lines in the United States take a long time to get built on average about a decade, even longer for really big, important transmission lines. And so that's what we're trying to address is getting more of these transmission lines built uh, and building them faster. And so that's something that we're trying to get with both the Big Wires Act and also with uh, clean energy permitting reform in general. And this is a problem that a lot of experts have been flagging for a while now. Uh, just recently, we had this report from the National Academies of Science 
called Accelerating Decarbonization in the United States. That said, perhaps the single greatest risk to a successful energy transition in the 2020s is the risk that the nation fails to site, modernize, and build out the electrical grid. And the need for adding new transmission capacity and pathways in the 2020s is unprecedented. The net result could be increased fossil fuels because, again, we've got all this um, electrification happening from buildings, you know, adding uh, electrical heat pumps and from transportation shifting to electric cars. And so if we have this increase in power demand and we aren't able to connect all this new solar and wind to the grid, then we have to meet that increased electrical demand with fossil fuels. And that's what we want to do. That is counterproductive to our climate goals. So National Academy of Science Committee said uh, we recommend siting and permitting reforms to avoid that outcome. So lots of experts are pointing to this need for permitting reform. Uh, also, we just got this report. Um, it was also from MIT, and it was sort of compiling all of the uh, energy modeling forecasts when the Inflation Reduction Act was passed and comparing what they forecast the increase in clean energy would be compared to what has happened so far, because now it's been about a year and a half since the Inflation Reduction Act was passed. And so they said, let's check to see how we're doing. And so you can see the results on this chart. The blue is so far how much wind and solar we've added to the grid. And then this bar, the first uh, orangish bar on the right here is the average forecast of what they expected between 2023 and 2024. This is what we had in 2023. And so you can see we're already kind of falling behind the projections. Um, because we're not building wind and solar fast enough. That's actually not a surprise because right after that modeling was done and after the Inflation Reduction Act was passed, then we had uh, a new modeling work uh, done by the Princeton Repeat Modeling Group that identified that if we don't start building electrical transmission faster, then we're not going to be able to meet uh, the emissions reductions in the Inflation Reduction Act because we wouldn't be able to connect that solar and wind to the grid. And so that's Basically, exactly what we're seeing happening right now. We haven't gotten permitting reform done yet, and so we're not connecting enough solar and wind to the grid yet. So in this report, they said the biggest barriers to deployments between now and 2030 are non-cost in nature because we tackled the cost problem. Uh, solar and wind are really cheap, and they have tax credits, so they're even cheaper. Um, so it's not cost that's a problem, but the problems are siting and permitting delays, uh, also backlogged great interconnection queues and supply chain challenges. Uh, the supply chain challenges are going to be resolved as um, we get working on that. Uh, the solar supply chain is actually in pretty good shape at this point. Uh, the wind supply chain still needs some work. Um, but what we haven't addressed yet is the permitting delays through permitting reform. So that's why getting some permitting reform done through Congress is so important so that we can get the solar and wind connected to the grid so that we can meet these projections of what the IRA uh, can do. And so we can see that in graphical form here from uh, the data in that Princeton repeat report that was looking at the importance of building our inter or our transmission infrastructure faster. So what we're looking at is the amount of wind and solar power generation capacity added in the United States. Uh, this is from 2010 through 2023. And then they looked at a few different scenarios. This one is if we continue 
uh, building our electrical transmission infrastructure out at the same rate that we have over the past decade, just another 1% per year or so. And you can see wind and solar don't grow very fast in that scenario because they can't get connected to the grid. But if we can get that boosted up to 1.5% expansion of transmission per year, then you see a lot more solar and wind able to be connected to the grid. And if we can get it up to 2% per year, then you get even more solar and wind connected to the grid. And so it just shows how important it is to get uh, these transmission lines built uh, as quickly as possible. Uh, the good news is in 2024, we're projected to be somewhere around here. So we're on track for uh, these higher uh, wind and solar projections. Uh, so that's a good start. But still, the question is, how are we going to do in the coming years? Are we going to be able to meet this really fast growth that we need to to meet uh, our the our Inflation Reduction Act's emission reductions potentials and to try and meet our Paris commitments as well? So that's one of the problems we're trying to solve here with our transmission legislation is to be able to add more clean energy to the grid, which requires more transmission lines and transmission capacity. Uh, a couple other problems are that we're seeing more and more extreme weather as climate change gets worse. And oftentimes those extreme weather events cause blackouts because they knock out some of our power generation. So we're trying to also help resolve that issue. And another issue is that a lot of regions around the country have very little transmission connection to their neighbors, um, which there are a lot of benefits to increasing that transmission connections, including being able to share clean, cheap electricity between different regions. And so we want to resolve that too and get more interconnection of our grid. And we want to just kind of improve the grid in general for a lot of our, for those reasons and uh, a lot more to make the grid more robust. And so there's a few things you can do to accomplish that goal. Uh, we can just add more of this transmission uh, connections between regions, between neighbors, which as we're going to discuss here, that's what the Big Wires Act would do. Uh, but that's not the only thing we want to do on transmission. So uh, that's worth noting that in a comprehensive permitting reform package, we want to ideally include more transmission stuff than just the Big Wires Act. We would also like to speed up the rate, the permitting time of big, important long distance transmission lines, which the Big Wires Act wouldn't do. As we'll discuss, the Big Wires Act would have us build more transmission lines, but it wouldn't address the, the time needed to permit them. So we'd also like to do something about that. And another issue is uh, cost allocation that when a transmission line is being built, um, people or different regions are always fighting about who's gonna pay for how much because you don't wanna pay for more than your fair share. And so uh, that, those fights often take a long time and delay the permitting process. And so you need to solve that by uh, doing some kind of formula that, a formula that calculates who's gonna benefit by how much and they will pay proportional to how much they benefit. So you just have to come up with kind of an agreed upon formula to do that calculation, allocate the costs fairly, and then that bypasses these arguments over who's going to pay for how much of these transmission lines and speeds up the process. So now let's get into what the Big Wires Act actually does. Uh, it is the Building Integrated Grids with Interregional Energy Supply Act, <laughs> just a great name. And the Big Wires Act tells the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, to require each transmission planning region 
except for Texas, because Texas uh, likes to do its own thing, likes to be independent. Uh, the organization in charge of Texas's uh, electricity is called ERCOT, and ERCOT likes to be left alone. So uh, Texas is basically exempted from big wires, although they can voluntarily comply with big wires if they want to, but they're not required to. So every other transmission planning region is required to increase the amount of interregional electrical transfer capacity, uh, the amount of electricity they can exchange with their neighbors. And so the amount that they have to do that is based on their peak load, which is the biggest uh, electricity demand that each region has uh, during a given year. So like for hot regions, that's going to be in the summer when it's really hot and everybody's got their air conditioners on. And so there's big electricity demand. So you look at whatever your biggest electricity demand is and you say, okay, you know, if during one of these uh, periods where we have a lot of electricity demand, if a bunch of power goes out, we want to be able to make up for that by importing some electricity that's extra from our neighbors. And so uh, um, the Big Wires Act says, okay, we would like to ideally be able to import 30% of our peak load from our neighbors. That was the initial uh, text in the Big Wires Act, but then some regions, especially kind of in the eastern part of the country, said, whoa, whoa, we don't have very much interregional transfer capacity right now, and it'll be really hard for us to get up to 30% uh, really quickly, so ease up on us. And so then the authors of Big Wires said, okay, we'll make it a little easier. Instead, you can do the lesser of either your current capacity plus 15% of the peak load if you are uh, have, if you have not very much uh, capacity right now or up, get up to 30% of your peak load. So for example, if you're in a region that has uh, the capacity of transferring 5% of your peak load from your neighbors, then now you have to add 15% of that, so you have to get to 20%. If you're currently at 20%, then you just have to get to 30%. So it's got different requirements so that it's not give, it's not placing an undue burden on regions that are kind of behind the ball in terms of interregional connection right now. And so the timeline on the bill, uh, once it is passed, which we would hope ideally it will get passed as part of a big permitting reform package this year, and so if that happens, it says within a year and a half, uh, so by about 2026, FERC will issue this rule uh, saying exactly how much each region has to increase its uh, inter-regional transfer capacity. Once that happens, then the regions have two years to submit their plans on that, that detail how they're going to accomplish that, uh, how they're going to meet the requirements of the Big Wires Act, so by around 2028 or so. And those plans have to include cost allocation. So they have to have that formula that says who is going to pay for how much of these upgrades. So it uh, bypasses those fights that tend to happen over paying for these projects. If any region doesn't, and any transmission region doesn't do that within two years, then FERC will do it for them to make sure that it gets done in a timely manner. They'll, FERC will put together the plan uh, saying how they're going to meet uh, the big wires requirements. And then those plans have to set a timeline and show like exactly how they're going to uh, meet those upgrades by the end of the year 2035. And they also, the regions also then have to submit updated plans every five years, kind of saying, here's our status, here's how close we are, here's how much pro progress we have made towards our plan of meeting the Big Wires Act requirements. So everything gets done uh, by the end of 2035. 
Uh, and there's a lot of things to like about the Big Wires Act. Uh, for one thing, it's technology neutral because it's not just solar and wind that need transmission lines. It's every type of power um, benefits from having more transmission capacity. Um, so everybody, everybody benefits from uh, Big Wires. Uh, it also has no cost to the federal government. We don't have to worry about budgetary concerns. Uh, because utilities and transmission developers have to pay for these upgrades. But those uh, utilities and developers also get the benefits that come along with increasing their interregional transfer capacity. So for example, they get the benefits of now being able to import cheap electricity from their neighbors. Uh, they also have to build less local infrastructure because they, you know, they have to build like less new power plants locally because they're able to import more electricity from neighboring regions. And so basically making the grid more efficient uh, offsets a lot of costs. And we'll talk in, in detail about those costs here in a little bit. And the bill also offers flexibility. It doesn't say how each region has to meet the requirements of the Big Wires Act. It just says increase your interregional transfer capacity by X amount. Do it however you like. Let's do it however the most cost-effective way to do it is. So they can build new transmission lines. They can uh, upgrade their existing transmission lines. A big uh, topic of discussion right now is reconductoring, which is when you take existing transmission lines and you replace the wires that are like old technology with new technology uh, that can carry more current. And so just making the existing wires uh, more efficient. Or you can do things that are called grid enhancing technologies, uh, like things are called dynamic line ratings, which basically you put some equipment on there that can monitor the current uh, weather conditions, uh, things like heat and wind and say, okay, the weather's nice. So the wire can carry more current at this point, which then makes it more efficient again. So there's a variety of different ways, uh, some are more cost effective, that these um, transmission regions can implement to meet the Big Wires Act requirements. And so they're going to do it in the most cost effective way possible and then uh, minimize the cost associated with these upgrades required by the Big Wires Act. So it's a very smart way to do it. Let us find the most cost effective upgrades possible. And so uh, we recently lobbied on the Big Wires Act in November. We lobbied our members of Congress, and they came back with a bunch of questions uh, that were not easy to answer at the time. And now we just got this report that came out from uh, these researchers at MIT uh, called Evaluating the Impact of the Big Wires Act. And it really answered pretty much all the questions that we got from our members of Congress that we didn't have great answers for at the time. And so... That's why we're doing this up update, because we want to now be able to answer those questions uh, in a more quantitative manner. So one of the questions we got is, how do we know that the Big Wires Act will actually reduce costs if we have to build all these new transmission lines and upgrade our transmission infrastructure that has costs? And as I mentioned, like we do know that making the grid more robust increases efficiency, and that should reduce costs. But we're just kind of have to have we had to do a hand waving and say, well, there's been some studies uh, that have um, suggested that uh, this will make it more efficient, more cost effective, but we didn't have numbers on it. So now this study put numbers on it. So what they said was, uh, of course, um, because we're able to add more capacity to the grid as we're building these interconnections, that then allows us to build more solar and wind farms and connect those to the grid and share that electricity, which is very cheap electricity, uh, between regions. And so that does lower costs. 
And they quantified it in a couple different ways. They looked at two different scenarios. And the first scenario they looked at was, let's assume that we're not even trying to meet any climate targets. Let's just assume we're doing the status quo, just letting the grid do its thing. And if we add the big wires act, then what will it do to costs? And they found that adding that new cheap solar and wind to the grid would reduce by itself uh, our costs nationwide by $330 million per year. And so that reduced cost is then going to translate into reduced electricity prices and electricity bills. And when I say costs, uh, you can see down here the things they accounted for. So they accounted for the new transmission line infrastructure, also the investment in new power plant generation, new storage, the operation and maintenance of those power plants, the fuel associated with them, and the tax credits and incentives. So accounting for all those things, including having to build new transmission lines, you save $330 million per year nationwide through the Big Wires Act. But then there's also the fact that we do have climate targets. We're aiming for net zero by 2050. That's our Paris commitment. And so they looked at that scenario too and said, okay, given that we're going to have to build a whole lot of clean energy to meet our Paris commitments, uh, what would Big Wires Act save us given the, that kind of real world scenario? And since big wires then allow us to connect more solar and wind to the grid, which is the cheapest way to reduce our emissions from the power sector and from other sectors as well, um, basically they found that um, the Big Wires Act would, given that scenario, save us two about $2.5 billion per year uh, in reduced overall costs um, to the grid and power and everything like that. So it saves a whole bunch of money um, which is exactly what we were hoping to see. And then we also got a bunch of questions about how is the Big Wires Act going to impact my specific region? And that was a question that we did not have good answers to because that's a very complicated question. And so this bill or this report really helps us answer those questions. And you can see kind of the key map on the right here. And what we're looking at is each of these individual transmission regions and the red uh, bars show how much interconnection capacity there is between the regions right now. And the gray is how much more has to be added to meet the requirements of the Big Wires Act. And the thicker the bar is, uh, the more uh, capacity there is or needs to be added. And so we got a bunch of data on the left here. Um, and so what we're looking at is each different region, how much transmission capacity it has to add, how much that will cost or save the region, and how much electricity will be exported or imported into or from the region. And again, we're looking at all those same costs. We're talking about the cost of the transmission lines, the cost of the new power generation, operation, maintenance, fuel, and so on. And so you can kind of group these regions into three groups. And so the first group uh, is these four at the top, Florida, the Midwest, uh, the Carolinas, and then New York is kind of similar. And so in those four regions, they all have to add a fair amount of new power generation capacity, although it's also worth bearing in mind that like Florida and the Carolinas are pretty small regions, like they're one or two states, and so they don't have very much of a peak load, and so they don't have much interconnection capacity now, and so they have to basically triple what they currently have, but because like 
their peak load is pretty small, like even tripling that, that, that capacity is like, it's not a huge increase in like gigawatts of capacity. So it's just that they don't have very much right now. They have to increase it by about threefold uh, in terms of uh, their transmission capacity. But in terms of like just wires, it's not a whole lot more wires. And so then you can see the costs for these, uh, these four regions is all negative, which means they're saving money. Uh, and especially Florida and the Midwest and the Carolinas are saving a lot of money, uh, over a billion dollars each. And the reason they're saving money, you can see in this last column, is that they are the negative means that they're importing electricity. And so basically, by adding this new inter-regional uh, capacity, they are able to import cheap electricity from their neighbors. Uh, for example, Florida gets a bunch of cheap solar energy from the southeast and so on. And so because they're importing all this cheap electricity, that saves them a bunch of money. And so the benefits for these regions of the Big Wires Act is pretty clear that by adding this capacity, they're able to import cheap electricity and that saves them money directly. Um, it's less so for New York, um, but still New York's kind of in the same category. Uh, it saves $170 million, but Florida and the Midwest and the Carolinas save over a billion dollars. And so the next group is basically the whole Western United States. It is the Northwest, California, and the Southwest. Uh, you can see on this map, there's very little gray. There's a lot of red because these regions are already very well interconnected. And so to meet the requirements of the Big Wires Act, they have to have they have to add very little more uh, electrical transmission capacity because they already have quite a bit. So basically, for the western part of the United States, we're already in pretty good compliance with the Big Wires Act requirements. And so it doesn't take much to meet uh, its requirements. And so there is very little in the way of costs. There's not much change in terms of imports or exports of electricity. Um, so like there is a slight benefit to the Northwest and to California in terms of importing a little bit more clean, cheap electricity. Uh, the Southwest exports a bit of its lots, it's got lots and lots of solar resources. And so it exports a little bit to, uh, to California and Northwest, for example. Uh, but there's not much change in those regions uh, in, to comply with the Big Wires Act, they're already in pretty good compliance. And then the last group of uh, regions is the Northeast, way up here, uh, the central part of the country, the Mid-Atlantic, and the Southeast. And so those regions, they all have to add a fair amount of new uh, transmission capacity, and they have pretty you know, fairly large costs. But there's an important caveat that they put in this report that an increase in costs is not necessarily a negative impact on the region because we also see an increase in electricity exports to other regions, thereby, thereby increasing regional revenues. So you can see that in this last uh, column here, all of these regions are exporting electricity to their neighbors. And so basically what's happening is that these costs are associated with building a lot of new power generation. So uh, they're building a lot more, especially like in the central part of the country, they're building a lot of wind because there's lots of wind resources in the central part of the country. And so building those wind farms has a cost, but then they get the benefit of exporting that cheap wind energy to places like the Midwest and uh, neighboring regions. And you know those tend to have higher price electricity markets. And so they can sell that cheap wind energy at a little bit of a higher cost and a little bit of a higher price. And so then they get some nice revenue from that. So they get good revenue to the utilities from selling that electricity. 
Uh, the states also get tax revenue from those new wind and solar farms that are being built. And they also get the jobs associated with building and running those new uh, power generation facilities. So basically, it's a different category of benefits. The benefit to these four regions is that they're building more uh, infrastructure, more power generation. So they get the revenue associated with that. They get to sell that electricity to their neighbors, and they get the jobs associated with that. So it doesn't translate. So basically, this, these four regions at the top, that translates as cheaper electricity. Uh, the three in the middle, big wires doesn't have much change. And then the four regions at the bottom here, they benefit from being able to build lots of new infrastructure and sell their electricity to their neighboring regions. So it's kind of three different impacts of the Big Wires Act, but they're all generally pretty good. And then another question we got about the Big Wires Act is why 30%? Like, why does the bill say we should try to get up to 30% of our peak load transfer capacity between regions? Isn't that kind of an arbitrary number? Like, should we study it first? Like, how do we know that's the right number? And so a lot of members of Congress said, let's study it first before we pass the Big Wires Act. And in fact, uh, there's been legislation uh, in the debt ceiling deal. We're trying to get big wires into the debt ceiling deal. And instead, the debt ceiling deal said, let's study this question. And so this report from MIT studied the question for us. It did the modeling and it said where, you know, for each 10% of added or 5% added into regional transfer capacity, what is the cost benefit and what's the most cost effective number? And so again, they looked at those two scenarios. On the left here, we're saying just status quo, not worrying about any climate targets, um, just building more infrastructure, uh, more uh, transmission lines capacity, then what is the kind of cost effectiveness of that? And what they found was that totally coincidentally, 30% um, of the peak load is the most cost effective number. Uh, that's where we get that $330 million savings per year if we get up to that 30% added transfer capacity. And they were like, oh, that's a funny coincidence that Big Wires is trying to get up to 30%, and 30% happens to be the most cost-effective number. And I would also say that I think they're being a little conservative because energy modelers for a long time have tended to underestimate the rate at which solar and wind costs, especially solar costs, have fallen. And uh, there's been other research saying, like, if you account for the rate at which we expect solar costs to continue to fall, then it'll be even cheaper than expected, um, whereas this modeling was kind of more traditional. So I think they're underestimating the cost benefits of adding more solar and wind to the grid. But nevertheless, using kind of traditional modeling, this is their result that 30% is the most cost-effective number. And then they also looked at what if we are trying to get to um, basically net zero, they said 95% uh, emissions reductions, but basically get down to net zero, then what's the most cost-effective number? So that came out with this line where you can see here's your 30% is right there. That's where you save your $2.5 billion. But if you were actually to increase your interregional transfer capacity even more, even getting up to basically doubling it, close to 100% increase, uh, then you actually save even more money the more transmission capacity you add because then again you're able to add more solar and wind which are the cheapest ways to reduce your emissions and so uh, doing even better than 30% is actually the most cost effective route if you were trying to get down to net zero by 2050 for example which is what we're trying to do so this is kind of your more real world example uh, that basically the more interregional transfer capacity you add the more cost effective it is 
And so kind of the answer to this question of like, what should the number be is that it should be at least 30%. Like that's a good place to start is 30%. And then maybe in the future we can uh, expand on that, but 30% is a good starting point. And so Big Wires did a, a good job picking a good number to start with. And then we had a good inkling that it would reduce blackouts because again, if you can connect uh, neighboring regions who can then share electricity, then that's gonna make the grid more stable and avoid some of these blackouts. But the study modeled this specifically. And what they looked at was uh, winter storm Elliott, which hit the Eastern part of the country in 2022 and knocked out a bunch of power generation, caused a bunch of blackouts. And they said, okay, what if that exact same storm had happened in a post big wires world after we've done all these interconnections in say 2035. So in 2022, winter storm Elliott knocked out power to 4.7 million homes. And then they simulated that in the post uh, big wires world. And they found that with those increased in interconnections, then uh, winter storm Elliott would have knocked out 2.1 a million homes knocked out the power to 2.1 million homes. And so basically it would have had 58% less blackouts uh, from Winter Storm Elliott had we been complying with big wires ahead of time. Um, so basically that's confirmation that um, passing the Big Wires Act and meeting its requirements will make the grid more robust and reduce blackouts and power outages, which is great because Blackouts and power outages cause all kinds of problems, uh, dangers to people's health and, and lives and you know economic damages. And like if you can avoid uh, blackouts or reduce blackouts, that has lots of great benefits. And we also had a good idea that the Big Wires Act would reduce emissions by allowing us to connect more solar and wind and clean energy to the grid, but we didn't really know by how much. And so this paper uh, did some modeling to estimate how much the Big Wires Act would reduce our uh, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it would also reduce other air pollution because if you're replacing dirty fossil fuels with clean energy, then you're going to reduce other air pollution too, but they only looked at greenhouse gas emissions. But just worth bearing in mind that Big Wires Act would also reduce other air pollution associated with um, fossil fuel power plants. And so the estimate in the paper was that if we were to pass the Big Wires Act, that would reduce our greenhouse gas emissions by 73 million tons of CO2 per year, which is about a 1% to 2% reduction in our greenhouse gas emissions, depending on what year you're looking at. Um, so that's, you know, it's a pretty decent chunk, considering that this is just one bill that we're trying to include in a comprehensive clean energy permitting reform package. Just this one bill would knock out 1% to 2% of our greenhouse gas emissions. Like that's a pretty decent chunk for this, just this one bill, this one piece of a, of a permitting reform package. So uh, it's a nice little chunk of emissions reductions. So if you put it all together, we're gonna reduce energy costs, we're gonna reduce blackouts, we're gonna reduce climate pollution. So big wires is really just a win, win, win a great bill to get passed and get all of these positive benefits achieved. So then really quickly, I wanted to touch on the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, household energy um, electrification and efficiency. Um, so there was a nice uh, paper published on this, looking at where the potential emissions reductions from the Inflation Reduction Act could come from. Uh, so you can see that on this chart, this is the total emissions reductions from the IRA in the dark blue. And this lighter blue is the amount that would come from household decisions, uh, which they broke out into space heating. So basically replacing 
fossil fuel space heaters like fossil fuel furnaces, uh, natural gas furnaces with electric heat pumps. That would be 17% of the IRA's potential emissions reductions. Uh, another 17% from switching from gas cars to electric cars. And another 6% from switching from fossil fueled water heating, like natural gas water heaters, to electric heat pump water heaters. And so almost a quarter of the potential emissions reductions from space heating and water heating. And then another 17% from electric cars. So lots of important uh, contributions to our emissions reductions could come from these household decisions. And so we've been keeping an eye and, and waiting for these household uh, low and middle income upfront rebates for home electrification and efficiency so we can get those heat pumps installed in people's homes and get them uh, paid for those uh, upgrades upfront. And so we got some updates on that. Uh, we heard these four states, California, Hawaii, New Mexico, and New York, um, have gotten to kind of the last stage. They have a, put together their plans for how they're going to uh, do these programs and submitted those plans to the Department of Energy. Uh, we actually learned that these the Department of Energy kind of handpicked these four states because probably because they have um, really well-staffed uh, energy offices, which the energy offices are the state offices that have to uh, implement these programs. And so they got some help from the uh, Department of Energy to try to get them uh, going quickly so that they could kind of iron out the wrinkles and then apply this kind of stuff to other states as well. And so hopefully around spring, or it's, it's almost spring now, so within the next few months, we're hoping that these four states uh, upfront rebate programs for home electrification and efficiency for low and middle income households will become available. They're almost there. So that's great. And then these bunch of states um, have um, gotten funds from the Department of Energy to kind of do the administrative things needed to get these programs set up. So they're in the pro process of getting the program set up. And so their rebate should be available sometime probably later this year, maybe toward the end of the year or something along those lines. It's hard to predict, but uh, later in the year, this, these whole big chunk of states uh, should have their rebate programs available as well. And then we got these states in orange here have applied for the administrative funds. So they're a little bit further behind. They're still waiting to get the funds to do the administrative work to set up the programs uh, to then get the money from the Department of Energy. And these programs basically have to demonstrate like, here's how we know the people applying for these funds are lower middle income households and, and things like that. It's kind of the complicated paperwork associated with it. So they've applied for administrative funds to set up the program. So they still got a ways to go. So probably looking at 2025 for these states to get their program set up, but they are uh, ready to work on it. So they're trying to get the ball moving. And then these chunk of states uh, were a little bit of a mystery to us for a while because they hadn't even applied for administrative funds to get the programs started. And we were like, what's the holdup, guys? And so uh, we actually had state coordinators and I think all of these states contact their state energy offices and be like, what's going on? What's, are you, what are you guys doing? And we got answers from a, a lot of these states. And some of them were like, yeah, we just don't need administrative funds because we already have staff. And if you don't use the administrative funds uh, for administrative purposes, then you can use it in the program. So that's actually kind of a good thing. Um, they, they'll have more funds for the program if they don't need the administrative funds. So for some states, that was the answer. Uh, some other states were just like, we're waiting for those first four states, California and so on, to get their programs set up. And then that'll give us a better idea how to do our programs. 
Um, but we've got positive answers from most of these states. Um, none of the states were just like, we're not going to do anything, I think. Um, they were all pretty positive. Even we were a little bit worried about Florida because the governor there has kind of said, like, I don't want any Inflation Reduction Act funds. But actually, the Florida uh, Energy Department was like, yeah, we're, we're going to be working on this. And so good news, like these states are it's going to take them probably a while yet to get the program set up. But they are uh, at least all the ones we heard from are planning to work on it. So it's just going to take some time. Government sometimes doesn't work as fast as we would like. And so let's wrap up here, looking at what's going to happen next. Um, so for the Big Wires Act, as I mentioned, we're trying to get it included in a comprehensive permitting reform package, which negotiations for that are ongoing, uh, especially in the Senate. And in fact, there was just a, a story in like Politico yesterday that Senator Manchin is very, very eager and working very, very hard, especially with Senator Barrasso on the Republican side, trying to get a bipartisan permitting reform package done. Uh, Senator Manchin was like, we're going to get something out in the spring. So, you know, it's, you know, timelines in, in, the, in Congress don't necessarily mean much, but that's what he's aiming for. Uh, they're trying to get something together. They are making good progress. So hopefully in the relatively near future, we'll see some kind of permanent reform package that we can then evaluate and see how we like it and hopefully we can support it. So keep an eye out for that. In the meantime, we have the conservative conference happening in March and then the summer conference happening in June, uh, which those may involve uh, a more asks for the Big Wires Act as a primary ask or maybe permanent reform. We'll see what we decide to do in terms of our asks, but that could be in there. And then in terms of home electrification and efficiency, we're going to continue to do things like outreach events and tabling. And when those state upfront rebates become available in each state, uh, especially those four states that are going to be available relatively soon, then hopefully we can have a big push from chapters in those states to educate their local communities to make sure people know uh, how to apply for those rebates and take advantage of them. So. As those rebates become available, we're going to keep an eye out for that for each given state. Thanks, everybody, for coming, and let's get some Big Wires Act and permitting reform done. Here, here. First and foremost, thank you so much, Dana. Join me in just giving a big round of applause. It was just a, a wonderful in-depth summary of um, both of those studies. And you can also go to the Action Tracker and then by clicking on Chapter and Volunteer Development and then Training find the Big Wires Act training to get credit that way as well. A reminder as well that Dana's email and um, the Nerd Corner URL are here. And with that, I we are at the top of the hour, and I'm just going to unmute all lines so that we have the chance to join. One final rousing thank you to your research and overview tonight, Dana. Thank you all so much for being here. Stay safe, and we look forward to hearing how you use this information locally. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.